The Psalter is an invitation to ponder the truths of God and the realities of life. It presents worshipers with channels of praise, offering them opportunities to communicate with the Lord in a variety of meaningful ways. The imagery and honesty of the Psalms have captivated readers throughout the centuries, making them a fixture in both corporate worship and private devotion. The Jerusalem temple likely utilized the Psalter in liturgical worship, as is evidenced by the days of the week being assigned to certain psalms and the collection's many sacrificial and temple references. Likewise, the hundreds of psalm quotations and allusions in the New Testament demonstrate how prominent the Psalter was in the everyday piety and theology of early Christians. Since the Psalter was so important to the worship and devotion of both Jews and first century Christians, it behooves students of the Psalms to inquire as to why that was the case. What are some of the key messages relayed in the Psalter that have had such a profound and lasting impact on God's people? It would obviously be impossible to exhaustively answer that question in one presentation, but we can try to partially respond to it by examining one of the most important psalms, which happens to represent one of the most significant genres within the Psalter, and that is Psalm 2 and its message about kingship. Here's an outline of the course of our study. We'll first notice a few points of introduction to the psalm. Then we will discuss for a time the text of the psalm itself. And then finally, at the end, we'll talk for a little while about the message and significance of the psalm, especially as it's utilized in a few passages in the New Testament. So let's start with talking about Psalm 2 as an introduction to the Psalter. There are a number of prominent genres and themes throughout the Psalter. Scholars have increasingly identified the first two psalms as a general introduction to the whole book. Psalm 1 and 2 present some of the core themes that readers need to understand as they survey and learn from the book. Psalm 1 focuses on the wisdom of the two paths. The one whose delight is in the law of the Lord as opposed to the one who walks in step with the wicked. Wisdom and Torah appear throughout the rest of the Psalter, and the reader needs to know that these two themes join together, undergird the whole worship experience. Likewise, Psalm 2 introduces a major psalm motif, that of kingship and royalty. Golden Gay highlights some of the structural overlaps between the first two psalms, and he notes how the teaching of the Lord is heralded and magnified in Psalm 1, while the plotting of the nations is frowned upon in Psalm 2. Also, both of these psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, close with blessings for those who, in Psalm 1, go the way of the righteous, and in Psalm 2, those who serve the Lord with Fear, as well as warnings for those who rebel, also found in both of these psalms. 
So these connections help to bolster the argument that the first two psalms really stand as a couplet united together in introducing the worshiper both to the wisdom and kingship of God as well as his divinely appointed representatives. That is, how do you get to the wisdom of God? You get to it through Torah. How do you understand the kingship of God? You understand it through the royal Davidic king. And so it's as if the compiler of the Psalter is offering us in these first two Psalms a prescription for how to live according to the will of God. It includes these two steps. Number one, learn the wisdom of God through Torah. And number two, follow the leadership of God through allegiance to his anointed king. Let's talk now about Psalm 2 within the wider genre of royal psalms. The Psalter was likely compiled into its final form in the post-exilic period. And this makes the prominence of kingship throughout the book understandable. The Second Temple era uh, witnessed the re-fortification of Jerusalem, the reconstruction of the temple, and the re-establishment of the Levitical priesthood, yet it clearly lacked the re-enthronement of a Davidic king. Thus, while there may not be an abundance of psalms explicitly about the Davidic king, Grant notes that the Davidic king subtly dominates the entire book, and I think that's manifest in a few ways. One is the sheer number of psalms that are attributed to King David, 73 of them in the Masoretic text and 85 in the Septuagint. In fact, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110, which speaks of the elevation of David's master to the Lord's right hand, where he rules and reigns in the midst of David's enemies, bringing judgment upon the nations. Psalm 110, just like our psalm, Psalm 2, links the Davidic monarchs to God's rule over the entire earth. The hope of Israel's elevation over the nations had been bound to the concept of kingship as far back as the days of Samuel's godly mother, Hannah, who prayed, The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed, or Messiah, 1 Samuel 2 and verse 10. So Hannah's royal expectation was then cemented a few generations later in God's promise to David that one of his descendants would be elevated to an everlasting kingdom. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever, says 2 Samuel 7 and verse 16. Psalm 2 introduces worshipers to the significance of kingship. It identifies Israel's king as God's anointed, who's been installed in Zion. This king is God's own son, who administers divine judgment. The rulers of the nations are to be warned about this king, and through him, 
They will learn to serve God. So these broad concepts relay the wide breadth and scope of Israel's monarchical theology and demonstrate how much of their worldview and even their eschatology was bound up in kingship. As Wilson notes, Psalm 2 offers us insight uh, into the ideology of Jerusalem kingship how the kings understood themselves, their authority, their roles, and their hopes. While Psalm 1 shows individuals how to live a life pleasing to God, Psalm 2 is all about the national hope of Israel and the nations and how God's promise to the people was forever linked to their king. Thus, Psalm 2 introduces the centrality of monarchy to the Psalter and emphasizes its significance in the ideology of Israel. The last point of introduction is to very quickly notice a little bit about the structure of this psalm. Psalm 2 is built on four sections that are close to equal in length. Verses 1 through 3, 4 through 6, 7 through 9, and 10 through 12. Mays explains how the psalm opens with a lengthy rhetorical question about the rebellious nations, which is answered with the Lord's wrath and scorn in the second stanza. Then the third part introduces the dominion that's given to the king by the Lord. And the last section concludes with an exhortation to the nations to submit to said authority and be blessed. The structure here highlights the ultimate purpose of the psalm, as both an expression of the Lord's sovereign power over all the nations and the delegation of that power to the Israelite king. And so for this reason, scholars like Craig point out that Psalm 2 is not just a royal psalm, but an even more precise genre of coronation psalms, which involve the setting of a crown upon the new king's head, the formal presentation of a document to the new king and his proclamation and anointing. Psalm 2 is built on the exaltation of God's rule over the nations through his son, the king. All right, that's enough of introductory remarks. We go now into a time of interpretation of the psalm itself. We'll start with the first three verses about rebels and the king. Here we go. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. Psalm 2 opens with its famous question, Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain. Uh, Robert Alter notes that some have tried to place this psalm into maybe a particular historical context when there was an alliance of nations that was planning an attack against Judea, but really these interpretations have proven nothing concrete. On the contrary, I think a more compelling thesis about this psalm is to see it as a timeless conviction on the part of the psalmist in an idealized worldview about God's Sovereignty. What I mean by that is this. The conspiracy of the nations here is to break the chains and shackles of God, which means to to gain liberation from God's authority. 
The rebellion of the nations against the will of God is, of course, a constant theme in the Old Testament. Though certain acts of rebellion and plotting were tied to specific historical events, the generic language of Psalm 2 is broad and sweeping, describing the plotters as the nations, the peoples, the kings of the earth, and the rulers. DeHood says that these expressions constitute stock literary figures within the genre of royal psalms, emphasizing the timelessness of the psalm. The object of the plotting of the nations is against the Lord and against His anointed. Now, think for a minute about the scenario here. There's a a vast host of nations that have all arrayed themselves against one Lord and His one anointed King. Surely the, the rebels have numerical advantage, yet as the psalm explains, it's God and not the nations, who directs the course of human history and affairs. Now, the use of the word anointed in verse 2 is theologically significant. The word anointed, which is Messiah, is the same word, is very rare in the Torah, the books of Moses. It's only found four times, and it's only ever connected to priests in the book of Leviticus. But the word anointed or Messiah took on a whole new meaning in 1 Samuel. We mentioned Hannah's prayer earlier. Hannah is the first person in the Bible to ever connect the word anointed Messiah with the concept of a king. And so after Hannah's prayer, when Saul becomes king and then later David, the word God's anointed becomes commonly used to refer to those men who were literally anointed with oil by the prophet Samuel and served as king. In the Psalter, in the book of Psalms, the word anointed is found ten times. It's connected to David and his offspring a few times, but actually, more often, it's connected to the faithful Israelites in general, and in Psalm 105, it's used to describe prophets on that occasion. In Psalm 2, it seems clear that his anointed, in verse 2, is paralleled with my king and my son in verses 6 and 7. Now, remember this, because this is the only time in all of the Old Testament where Messiah, king, and son are ever used together. The only time, right here. Messiah, King, and Son. The fact that God's authority is hitched to His anointed King, I think is crucial. Because this human King is seen as the vessel through which God's authority is exercised on the earth. While the psalm could have originally intended to speak of the Israelite kings as God's co-regent, We know, of course, that later generations of Israelites began idealizing a future messianic king who was destined to come to fulfill the charge of Psalm 2. And the New Testament authors, of course, see Psalm 2 as a messianic psalm par excellence, connecting it to the reign and kingdom of God so prevalent in the preaching of Jesus. So we've seen a little bit about the rebels and the king. 
And now we'll notice God's response to their rebellion in verses 4 through 6. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. How does the Lord react when the nations are arrayed against him? Oh, with laughter. According to verse 4, the insurrectionists seem to take their plotting very seriously. Oh, they think it's a, a very serious thing, but God doesn't seem to take it seriously at all. However, of course, not all is merriment in heaven, because once the Lord's had a good laugh, he derides them, speaks to them in his wrath, and is dismayed in his burning anger. That's how Robert Alter translates these expressions. Futado sees this as a moving progression from laughter to anger to condemnation. Uh, it's as if the, the progression then should be rightly paralleled with verses 1 and 2. As the people move from conspiring to plotting to rising up and banding together against God, he laughs at their conspiracy, scoffs at their plotting, is angered at their rebellion, and terrifies them with his response to their alliance. We see this building tension in both their plotting and God's response. And then the rebels follow their plot back up here in verses 1 through 3 with their declaration of independence. Oh, we're going to break free from God and His anointed. And so God has a response to their declaration, one of His own. He says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. When the enemies cried out, let us break off their chains and throw off their shackles. They were already understanding the connection between the king and the God that king was serving. They're using the plural pronoun here to refer to both God and the king. And now, in the Lord's response, he is both acknowledging and confirming that he has installed or set or appointed his king. God's installation of his anointed king is the language that's prompted Longman, Craig, and some others to see this, as I mentioned earlier, as not just a royal psalm, but more specifically a coronation psalm. The idea is that this psalm would have been read and recited when the new king took the throne from his deceased father. The ascension of the new monarch to the throne was seen as divine ordination. Now, the king's sacred location is identified as Zion and God's holy hill or holy mountain in some versions. Of course, there's an idealized sense of the psalm shining through here with this lofty description of Jerusalem. You know, when you read about Jerusalem in the Psalter, you see all kinds of lavish praise and adoration about the wonder and the splendor of the holy city and the great mountain that that city rested upon. Well, Jerusalem in reality was a small city set atop a, a modest hill. It governed a country that barely had any impact on the geopolitics of the ancient Near East. However, however, the city of David was viewed in the Psalter as the center of power over all the peoples of the earth. 
basically for two reasons. One, because God was there. And two, because that's where God put his king. His king was in Jerusalem. And so Israel became the queen of nations in spite of the fact that it was small and surrounded by so many hostile enemies. Our third section now, verses 7 through 9, we see God's elevation of his king. Verses 7 through 9 say, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Verses 7 through 9 constitute a vindication of royal authority. Keeping with the coronation theme, these words would have been recited when the newly crowned monarch took the throne using this high-flown language of divine sonship. And thus, this stanza here confirms the message of the last stanza, verses 4 through 6, about the anointing of the king, and they constitute a verbal confession of the mission that God has assigned to this king. Notice that the words, the king is to confess, come from God. You are my son, today I have become your father. The language spoken by the king uh, is meant to uh, emanate from the Davidic covenant. When speaking to the heir of David's throne, God said, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. That's what God told David in 2 Samuel 7 and verse 14. Covenant and sonship language are intertwined. In covenant relationships, God is always the father figure and his human partner is his son or partners are his children. The same terminology is applied elsewhere to the nation of Israel who was called to be God's son at the Exodus. Declaring the covenantal partnership between God and the king established the baseline for the monarch's authority, which is then relayed to us in the language of both conquest and judgment. This is what the king will do, who is God's son. Now, we have to acknowledge that the Davidic empire, even at its height, can never really have never be said to have ever fulfilled the kind of dominion that's described here, where the nations and the ends of the earth were one for God. Mays concludes the psalm is based on the faith that the Lord throned in heaven is the ultimate power. In fact, Psalm 72, verses 8 through 11, go even further than Psalm 2 when actual geographic territory is described that God has given to His King over which He will rule. And the conclusion is that all kings bow down to Him and all nations serve Him. Now this grandiose ideal 
might seem kind of unbelievable to modern readers. But the genuine conviction of the Davidic kings was their right to rule all the earth because their authority and warrant for conquest was from the Lord. And if the Lord said it would happen, it was going to happen one way or another. So now we come to the last section of the psalm where the nations are warned in verses 10 through 12. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate His rule with trembling. Kiss His Son, or He will be angry. Uh, He will be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For His wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in Him. The final stanza of Psalm 2 offers a universal warning to the kings of the earth, admonishing them to be wise. Because their only hope for deliverance from the conquering and judging Israelite king is to serve God and bow down to His royal Son. And one of the powerful claims of Psalm 2 is the universal scope of God's rule. Far from being uh, what many believe God to have been, a mere tribal deity, the Lord is portrayed as the God of the whole earth. Those kings and rulers who serve the God of Israel and do obeisance to His anointed King will receive blessings. Will receive blessings. Now, remember where we started this journey in connecting Psalm 1 with Psalm 2. Back in Psalm 1, if you read Psalm 1, it's pretty short, six verses. Uh, You'll learn in those six verses that judgment and destruction, which are coming, don't have to be inevitable. Just as the sinner can turn from the paths of the unrighteous, by accepting divine wisdom through the Torah and be spared, that's Psalm 1, so too can the nations turn from the paths of rebellion by accepting the divine authority that's manifested in the Davidic monarchy and they too can be spared. This is a path for blessings, both to the individual in Psalm 1 and to the nations in Psalm 2. So now for the remainder of our time, let's talk about what all this means for us, for Christians today. One way of unpacking Psalm 2 is to reflect on how it may have been read through the ages. Jamie Grant suggests imagining four readers of the Psalms. Of, of the psalm, from the days of David and Solomon to the age of the divided kingdom before the exile to the exilic and post-exilic era, and finally reading the psalm in Advent, in the light of the advent of Jesus Christ. You might imagine here that each era would find new meaning in the words recorded in Psalm 2. So, of course, the reigns of David and Solomon were a time of hopeful optimism as the centuries of chaos and unrest that had dominated the days of of the judges and the reign of King Saul had finally come to an end. Perhaps many Israelites 
believed Psalm 2 would soon be fulfilled as David's son and heir took his throne in Jerusalem and then not many years later completed David's dream project, the temple, the house of of God. So maybe they thought Psalm 2 was about to be fulfilled. Uh, the mighty rulers of the nations were coming to learn from Solomon and to glean the wisdom that God had given them to see the house that Solomon had built. Tragically, much of the hope of Israel's golden age soured when the ten northern tribes rebelled. Yes, the Davidic kings continued to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem, but surely Psalm 2 could never become a reality as long as God's own people remained divided and idolatry ran rampant. Eventually, the northern kingdom was destroyed, and then the Babylonians took Judah into exile. What could Psalm 2 mean for the captives? Well, if they were reading it, in light of the prophets, like Jeremiah and Daniel, Psalm 2 could have provided the encouragement the people needed to endure the hardships of Babylon, to hold on to that hope that God was not done with His people and God was not done with the Davidic line. A king was coming who would be God's most perfect son, who would rule in exactly the way God wanted him to rule. But I imagine many in Babylon could have just cast all that aside as mere wishful dreaming, a reality they would never know, maybe not even their children. When the Jews returned to the promised land, their efforts of rebuilding and reconstituting what was lost was another season of hope. and There was some optimism, but there was also a sense in which they knew that Isaiah's and Jeremiah's words of a restored kingdom had eluded them. Oh, the temple was rebuilt, yes, but it just wasn't as grand as Solomon's. There's no record of God's glorious presence filling it as it did in 1 Kings chapter 8 when the first temple was inaugurated. And worst of all, Psalm 2 was not even being used as it likely had been used in ancient times because no Davidic king stood before the nation flanked by priests reciting these words on his coronation day. The heathens were still in charge. Oh, the Persians were not the worst overlords you could imagine, but they were overlords nonetheless. And no king reigned from Jerusalem, God's city. It was under the power of foreign heathens. Now the meaning and significance of Psalm 2 suddenly took a dramatic course change during the ministry of Jesus, who was heralded as Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, according to Matthew 1 verse 1. The focus of Christ's preaching was the kingdom of heaven, which John had announced before him and the disciples continued to preach after him. The language of sonship. So vital to the Davidic covenant echoed at key times in Christ's ministry like at his baptism when the booming voice of heaven said, This is my Son whom I love. With Him I am well pleased. Matthew 3 and verse 17. However, 
the power of the kingdom that Jesus proclaimed, oh, it looked very different. Very different from the kind of power human rulers had traditionally exercised over others and still do to this day. After the Lord's resurrection and 40 days of instruction regarding the kingdom of God, the disciples were wondering, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Acts 1 verse 6, the hope of the prophets in the restoration of the Davidic king was still alive and well. And Psalm 2 played no small role in how the followers of Jesus understood his significance, especially after Pentecost. Peter and John performed a notable miracle in the temple in Acts 3, which was followed by their proclamation of Jesus' name and the faith that comes through Him. Their affirmation of a risen Savior landed them in jail in Acts 4. They were threatened by the Jewish leadership and finally released. After they returned to rejoin the gathered disciples, they were praying. And in their prayer, they quoted the opening lines of Psalm 2 about the plotting of the nations against the rule of God. And after they quoted Psalm 2, they said this in Acts 4, 27 and 28. They said, Indeed! Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city, in Jerusalem, in God's city, to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the Christians here identified both the Jewish and Gentile authorities who opposed and executed Jesus in light of the message of Psalm 2. Nevertheless, the disciples believed that the vain efforts of the nations were actually in perfect harmony with God's design. It's just like what Peter said on Pentecost two chapters before when he said Jesus of Nazareth was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead. Acts 2, 23 and 24. Years later, during his first missionary tour, Paul delivered a speech at the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. Now, Paul's sermon is a masterpiece. He connects many dots of Israelite history to the fullness of the gospel, including these words from Acts 13, 32 through 34. Paul says, We tell you the good news. What God promised our ancestors, He has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. As it's written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have become your father. God raised him from the dead so that he will never be subject to decay. Now this means that the early Christians understood the resurrection in particular, and I think by inference the subsequent ascension of Jesus as the coronation 
as King Jesus taking David's throne. This was the moment that God vindicated him and elevated him to the throne. This was the installation of the king on God's holy mountain. The nations had plotted and tried to thwart God's authority, but in response, he laughed. He laughed. Now Paul's connection here between the resurrection of Jesus and his coronation as cosmic king is corroborated in one more use of Psalm 2, and that's in the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. The writer of Hebrews opens his letter with a discussion concerning Christ's superiority to angels. The angelic host often carried out God's will on the earth. It was therefore important for Jewish Christians to recognize two truths. Number one, God now speaks through His Son as He used to speak through the prophets. And number two, God's will is now being accomplished on the earth through His Son who is His heir. The Son is the heir. And the writer explains to us exactly why this is the case. This is Hebrews 1, 3-5. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He'd provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty in heaven. So, He became as much superior to the angels as the name He has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I've become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. Jesus died on the cross, providing purification for sins. And I think the writer summarizes all of the events that followed the crucifixion with this exalted proclamation. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. That is to say, he rose, he ascended, he was enthroned, and it was this enthronement that earned him the name he has inherited, which is superior to the angels. Now, how does the writer explain all of this? Well, first he quotes the message of Psalm 2, and combines that to what God told David in 2 Samuel, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. That's this quote here. I will be his father and he will be my son. God, of course, didn't promise that one day he'd rule the world and reclaim the nations through angels. The plan of God was always to call David's true heir his son and to make the nations his inheritance and the ends of the earth his possession. The angels are therefore commanded to worship and serve the son and to rejoice because of his exalted reign. In conclusion tonight, we know that Christ's kingdom is manifestly different from what many of his contemporaries expected. It advances upon the nations through the proclamation of grace, mercy, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Yet it advances nonetheless. And I think that a mistake that Christians can easily make when we're ignorant of the Old Testament in general and the Psalter in particular 
is to lack appreciation for conquest language. For conquest language. Israelite authors of the Psalms, combined of course with the loyal preaching of the prophets, uniformly, and I mean there's no dissenting voice whatsoever, uniformly attest to God's work in bringing the whole earth under His reign. They knew that the kingdom of Messiah would inaugurate an era of justice, peace, and righteousness that would eventually cover the globe. And they knew that because that's exactly what the Spirit of God told them would happen. When the kings and rulers are warned in Psalm 2 to serve the Lord with fear and kiss His Son, they're being reminded that nothing... Nothing can stop God's reign in Messiah from even enveloping their own territories. So they better get on board because only in Christ will the nations find blessings and refuge. The anointed king reigns. What a wonderful truth to proclaim. In spite of how it may appear to our physical sight, in spite of what we may perceive the world looks like to us, all of Messiah's people should rejoice and glorify God because His mission is being accomplished around the world in Christ Jesus, our Lord and King. I think that's where I'll be done. Thank you.